the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed it is. Good morning to you. Seven minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock, and we're underway on this Tuesday, the 25th morning of the fifth month of the year of our Lord, 2021. Coming up on the program, two very interesting guests. I say interesting because normally if it was just cursing, I would say amazing and wonderful. Interesting because our first guest at 9.35 is going to be a bit of an experiment for me as I talk to a person named Laura Perry, Who's Laura Perry, you're wondering? Well, Laura Perry is a transgendered person turned back to becoming a transformed person because of extraordinary regret after she realized uh, the horrible mistake that she had made. Laura Perry became a transgendered male, lived with another male, and tried to live her life as a he with another he. Uh, she transformed fully and then came to realize the enormity of her mistake. This is something that more and more and more transgendered people are coming to have to deal with because the vogue, if you will, the trendy idea of saying, hey, I'm not me, I'm something else, whatever that may be, is pulling a lot of very gullible people in. They think it's cool, they think it's trendy, they think it's the hip chic thing to do, and they get involved, they get it pushed upon them by parents, they get it pushed upon them by society, they get it pushed upon them in schools, they get pushed, pushed, pushed by the LGBTQ agenda, which is looking for more members in order to increase their power. I tell you all the time about the power of membership. More members for Ohio Stands Up helps us in Columbus. More members of Citizens for Free Speech helps us nationally. Helps us get things done. Well, more members of the LGBTQ community helps them establish more normative thinking for very abnormal behavior and identification. 
And so they pull these kids in, and they pull these adults in, and they get them to think that this is cool, this is the way to go, and then massive regret follows. This person was saved by Dr. Everett Piper, of all people. It was Dr. Everett Piper, who you hear every Thursday right here on this program. Laura Perry is going to tell us her story. She's back to being her again. She's back to being Laura Perry. And that's what makes this such an interesting interview that we've got coming up at 935. Then at 10.10, you know what time it is. Then it is Kersenau time. It is Tuesday, and that means Peter Kersenau will be with us to discuss a whole host of things, including the national holiday that is coming. And I'm not talking about Memorial Day. I'm talking about a different national holiday, and you better believe it is in the offing. I will explain what I mean, but not until we begin our day as we always do with our Pledge of Allegiance. So if you would, please, rise. Put your hand over your heart. Face a flag if you have one. If you don't, that's okay. Close your eyes, and in your mind's eye, see the stars and stripes. Leftists, go ahead and take your knee. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice. For all. all right, there you have it. It's a big day today. What kind of a day today is it? Well, one year since the death of George Floyd, and we saw protests nationwide, the conviction of Derek Chauvin, and looming trials for other former officers in Minneapolis. Policing is going to change because all we could think about is the knee on the neck of George Floyd for nine minutes and 29 seconds. Al Sharpton marking three days of remembrance of George Floyd, whose family is set to meet with President Joe Biden at the White House today, marking the day that's also led to battles over progressive efforts nationwide to defund police departments. The national effort to defund police departments. That is exactly what they are trying to do. Where does that stand, by the way? That first anniversary of George Floyd's death will pass without lawmakers delivering on a police reform bill in his name, a goal President Biden sought in his first address to a joint session of Congress. But the top negotiators, Senators Tim Scott and Cory Booker, along with Representative Karen Bass, say they're getting closer issuing this joint statement, saying while we are still working through our differences on key issues, we continue to make progress towards a compromise and remain optimistic about the prospects of achieving that goal. Now, the House already passed a bill earlier this month. But now in the Senate, the real sticking point is the issue of qualified immunity, a legal protection for officers in facing civil lawsuits. Now, Democrats want to do away with it. Republicans are holding steadfast. So they have not come up with the overarching national law that redefines and reimagines policing. But let's talk about what has happened since May 25th, one year ago. Since George Floyd died one year ago today, more people have died in this country than at any point in recent years. And I'm not talking about from COVID-19, and I'm not talking about from other natural causes. I'm talking about from homicides. Crime rates, violent crime rates, homicide rates have spiked over the course of the last year, unlike they have in any year in recent memory. More and more people in urban center neighborhoods, meaning Section 8 housing neighborhoods, meaning um, impoverished neighborhoods, which 
demographically tend to be more minority than white of different minorities, not just all African Americans, but generally speaking, the urban centers in which violent crime is already the highest compared to other uh, other community areas, in the urban centers, violent crime is higher now than it has been, like I said, in recent memory. Homicides are up. Violent assaults are up. Robberies are up. Burglaries are up. Attacks are up. Violent crime is spiking all over this country. The victims of this violent crime are those minorities living in those neighborhoods and in those cities. And the reason why violent crime is up is because George Floyd died. George Floyd died one year ago today while being arrested, having his heart stop from an overdose of fentanyl and methamphetamines along with hypertension and heart disease. That's the bottom line. I understand what the jury what the jury uh, decided in the Derek Chauvin case. I don't care. George uh, Derek Chauvin doesn't deserve any sympathy or mercy because he's an idiot and he's a terrible cop. Still didn't kill the man. Drugs killed the man. Medical examiner said so. But I don't want to get off into the weeds on that too much. The point is, he died one year ago today, and in that year, since he died 365 days later. The left has done more to make sure that more people die of homicide out of respect to George Floyd than anybody can even comprehend. By attempting to abolish or defund police and policing in America, more minorities are getting killed every single day. All in the name of George Floyd. Isn't that great? Isn't that a wonderful way to honor the memory of St. George the Floyd? Oh, I say that a little bit dismissively because the reality is George Floyd was a very, 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 very bad man. George Floyd, George Floyd was a career criminal that is being now made out to be a saint. St. George the Floyd. I said a few moments ago about the national holiday that is coming, and I said it wasn't Memorial Day. That one, of course, is coming on Monday. But my prediction is that by this time next year, by the second anniversary of the death of St. George the Floyd, there will be a push and a call and an introduction by way of resolution in the United States Congress by some Democrat or Democrats to call for a national holiday, George Floyd Day. I believe it. I believe that's coming. I'm not saying it will pass, and I'm not saying it will become, but it will be introduced. It is something they will push for. George Floyd Day, a day to honor this victim of police brutality, this face of lethal force, this face of systemic racism in American policing. That is what they will call for. And while they do that, more and more African Americans and other ethnic minorities and racial minorities will die. At the hands of more African Americans and other racial minorities. Because that's the way it works. Over 85% of white people who are murdered are murdered by other white people. Over 90 to 95% of African Americans who are murdered are murdered by other African Americans. 
That's the way it is. Generally speaking, killings happen within your own racial subset and within your own uh, um, uh, demographic, not demographics, uh, geography. Because of your location. Because generally speaking, whites live around whites, blacks live around blacks, Latinos live around Latinos, and so on and so forth. That's not to say that they have to, of course. This is the way that they do. And with over 90 to 95% of black homicides coming at the hands of other black people, and with over 50% of the homicides in this country being committed by African Americans, 13% of the population committing over 50% of the homicides, and virtually all of them within their own demographics, meaning victims of black homicide are black people, and no police to be found, what do you think is going to happen after another year of this? So I wonder, as Al Sharpton and others got together for this great big George Floyd commemoration uh, day, and as the Floyd family, along with uh, the worst ambulance-chasing racist lawyer in America, Benjamin Crump, visits at the White House with Joe Biden today, as they all talk about St. George, what a glorious man he was, up for canonization in just a few short years. Certainly we can create a holiday within the next year. As they all get together and talk about what a great guy George Floyd was and what evil, demonic, systemically racists the police officers are, how many more people are going to have to die? Crime, crime wave 2020. These cities smashed homicide records amid nationwide crime spike. I'm reading to you from my search results for violent crime spike in U.S., What will uh, stop the violent crime spike? These are just the headlines. White House seeks $5.2 billion for violence intervention. Violence intervention used to be called what? (laughs) Police. But they are trying to erase police. So what what is violence intervention going to be? Oh, okay, this is going to be the social worker plan. Is that what it is? You're going to send an unarmed social worker? Into the middle of a domestic violence crisis, you're going to send an unarmed social or social uh, social worker into the middle of gang turf in in South Side Chicago, in East Side Cleveland, in All Sides Oakland. Is that what you're going to do? Is that your violence intervention? Violent crime is spiking, writes the New York Times. Do liberals have the answer? No. Liberals are the ones who are responsible for it. Liberals are the ones who are defunding and abolishing police. Surging crime rate spells trouble for Democrats in 2022 elections. Well, we hope so. Will the spike in murder and violence undermine criminal justice reform? (laughs) You You can't make this up. You also cannot deny its existence. This is the new reality. Cops are being chased out of the profession of policing, out of fear. Cops are retiring. New would-be cops are not coming into the academies to replace those that retire. Those who stay on the job have their hands tied. They cannot go out there and actively and proactively police to try to stop murders and crimes and other things from happening on patrol because then then they are accused of profiling and harassing and using police brutality against the people that they try to arrest. They have to wait until there's a radio call, and then more often than not, 
They're driving a little more slowly to the to the uh, to the event, to the to the to the site than they used to, because it's probably better to get there after the real bad stuff has happened and then clean it up than to get there in time to stop it and then be called your next by LeBron James when you shoot a suspect in the middle of a murder. When you shoot a suspect in the middle of an attempted homicide with a knife attack. So they're coming slower. More people are dying. So on this first day of the, or this first anniversary rather, of the death of George Floyd, I want George Floyd's family and friends and supporters and BLM and everyone else, I want to ask you a simple question. Are you happy with what you've created over the course of the last 365 days since George Floyd died? You have created a climate in which more and more people who look like George Floyd are dying. Not at the hands of police, but by other people who look like George Floyd. Do black lives matter? I think they do. But you know who doesn't think black lives matter? Black lives matter. The organization. They don't give a rip about black lives. If they did, they would stop the ongoing assault on policing. 923, we'll be right back. Homicides in cities were up 25 percentage points last year, 25 to 40%. The single, uh, biggest single-year increase since 1960, a trend that has not abated so far in 2021. 63 of the 66 largest police jurisdictions saw a rise in at least one category of violent crime, ranging from homicide and rape to robbery and assault, according to the Major Cities Chiefs Association. Homicides and shootings have gone up three straight years in Washington, D.C., and at least a dozen mass shootings reported nationwide over the weekend. This is dated, this is this weekend. What about that? Um, Democrats' flirtation with defunding the police. A handful of lawmakers on the left nearly scuttled a $1.9 billion capital security bill in the House may make them ill-equipped to handle the reemergence of crime as a top issue for voters. A reduction in the violent crime rate that began in the late in the 1990s led to concern receding at the ballot box, likely to the net benefit of Democratic candidates. President Trump ran hard against violence in major cities last year and frequently invoked the phrase law and order. Despite his loss to President Joe Biden and the preference of some Republican operatives for an emphasis on public safety, rather than the well-worn anti-crime catchphrases Trump tended to use, this hardline stance still drew votes. And it is expected that that hardline stance against violent crime will continue to draw votes into 2022. This is from the Washington Examiner. Examining... Who is to blame for the violent crime rates? One answer would be Derek Chauvin, because he was the one who knelt on George Floyd. A better answer is wild, radical Democrat governors, governor, uh, Democrat mayors, and yes, Democrat members of Congress, because they are the ones who are calling for the abolition of police, which is leading to the, um, uh, like I said, to the destruction in the, in the inner cities in this country right now. Let's go to Jan in Greater Cleveland. Hey, Jan, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi, Bob. The irony here is uh, we're respecting the death of George Floyd, 
and the people leading the charge against uh, the police are Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is led by Marxists. Marxists are communists. Communists do not value life. The only evaluation of life is find, found in the biblical teachings of the Bible. And uh, I, the wheels start turning when the police acted stupidly, came out of the mouth of our former president, and uh, I think uh, the, they, they figured with this death and, you know, the Black Lives Matter colors and all those other ladies uh, or... Patrice you know, Colors, yeah. That, I, 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 don't, yeah. I don't know if I don't know how if they should be. They want to be referred to as whatever they choose to be today, but uh, but they are the, the trained the, Marxists that okay. you're talking about. Okay. They are they okay. are indeed, yeah. They are they are so the trained let's Marxists. Use this mm-hmm. to na- to have a nationalized police force. That's what communists need is a nationalized police force. If people think they'll be treated better by a national police than the people who live in, near near them you know to to you to use um it's unfortunate that Derek Chauvin did what he did but this is being blown up to uh, uh make make uh, make America look bad well let's put it this way and you're right Jan thanks for the call you're right but when you talk about a nationalized police force people just need to think one thing they need to think Gestapo all right. A nationalized police force is not there to protect the citizens. The current police force, local police forces, are there to protect and serve the citizens. A nationalized police force is there to oppress the citizens, to make sure the citizens comply and fall in line. That's what happens in fascist regimes and in communist regimes. And in our situation, just to give you an example of what I mean before we go to the news here, when I talk about cops being chased away since George Floyd, the city of Cleveland is down 67 cops already this year, and it's May. That's not including May. Sorry, that was through through April. They will be graduating 34 in the uh, at the end of July in the academy. By then, there will easily be 100 to 140 more cops retiring. They are defunding Cleveland police through the back door. They cannot possibly get enough people into the classes of recruits in the academies to replace those who are leaving. The result is fewer police officers, slower response times, more violent crime and deaths. Where? Primarily in the inner city minority communities. So congratulations, George Floyd supporters. This is what you have wrought. You have wrought, rather. 932. We'll get to the news. We'll come back on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, 9.37. Again, a little late coming in because we were a little bit late going out. I will get back to the issue of policing in America, the issue of race in America, today being George Floyd, the one-year anniversary and what it means. And as I said, my prediction is by this time next year, by this date, May 25 in 2022, there will be at least a bill or a resolution on the House floor by Democrats to declare May 25th George Floyd Day. They are going to want to honor a career criminal who has spent eight years in prison over the course of, I think, four different stints for four different violent crimes. They're going to want to have a holiday named after him. Watch and see. I'll get back to that subject, though. But I want to go to somewhere somewhere completely different now. 
Every Thursday, we talk to Dr. Everett Piper on this program at 1010. And Dr. Piper told us a couple of weeks ago, as we were talking about, I believe it was the transgender athlete issue and the lawsuit uh, by the uh, runners in Connecticut, represented by Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, uh, to try to stop uh, biological males from participating in women's sports. At, at any rate, at one point, Dr. Piper told us about a woman named Laura Perry, and he talked about her transition from being Laura Perry, a male, or a female rather, to becoming Jake, a male, and then having profound regret and finding Christ and realizing the error of her her, her judgment and her ways, um, returned to her normal existence. Fortunately, as I understand it, there were no terribly radical pr- procedures uh, that were done outside of superficial and cosmetic things. But at any rate... Um, Laura Perry uh, is an example of why it is that we need to stop trying to tell our kids that it's okay. Take those hormone blockers. We're going to get you fixed up in an operating room by the time you're 15. Uh, it's dangerous, and the number of people who have incredible regrets is growing, at least the number of people we know of. So we reached out to Laura Perry uh, on the advice of Dr. Everett Piper, and Laura Perry joins us now on AM 1420, The Answer, to tell her story. Laura, thank you so much for joining us this morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. Um, what part of the country are you, uh, are you in, Laura? Um, I live in Oklahoma City. So uh, had you heard of Dr. Piper? Um, I, and we'll get, we'll get to the impact that his podcast um, had on you and, and your decision, but had you heard of Dr. Piper by way of his book from about six years ago, uh, Not a Daycare? He became a pretty, pretty widely known national celebrity in conservative circles with his book. Did you know about him before you heard his podcast? No, that actually happened after. In fact, he mentions me in the book. Um, but he didn't know that the publisher changed the name, so they call me Sandy. <laughs> ah, how about so, that? Yeah, okay. he wrote that after. Did not realize that. Well, thank you for that clarification. Let's talk about let's talk about your history here. I've been reading an article about you um, from tra- transgendered to transformed. It's it's so compelling. It's not terribly long, but it's so compelling. Uh, what you started out as as a child, or how your uh, you know your your uh, upbringing impacted some of the decisions you made going on into your uh, into your adolescent years, and then as an adult. So let's start by talking about confusing messages as a child um according to what i'm reading you you really had great attention from your father and your brother but not quite as much affection from your mother and you started to believe that she liked boys more than she liked girls because she gave great attention to your brother you think that's part of what maybe put it into your head that maybe it would be better if i was a boy i do yeah at a very early age and i was you know, and I don't blame my mom, and I'm going to make that, you know, really clear, but I, it's, there's a lot of confusion as a child when you're trying to figure these things out, you know, and I didn't understand that my mom loved me in a, in kind of a different way, and she wasn't spending a lot of time with me, but she was doing a lot for me, you know, and so I really, I, I just wanted her to spend time with me, though, and I would see her spending this time with my brother and just treating him very differently. I think part of the problem was she had lost two boys to miscarriage between my brother and I, and so I mm-hmm. think there was a um, a much greater attachment to him, longing for those two boys. So, I, but I used to see that, and I thought, well, maybe Mom wishes that I had been one of the boys instead. Is this? Uh 
a retrospective look, or did you realize that as it was happening? Did you look on, you know, as a young girl at your your mother and the time she spent with your brother, and realize this stinks? Was was it was it in in real time? No, I, I didn't realize any of this until after I came out of the, the lifestyle, and the Lord began to kind of peel away the layers and okay. begin to show me what had happened. At that time, I would have told you, I was 25 when I started, and I would have told you that I was born that way, that I had always felt that way, and I didn't see any reasons for it. Um, you also note, or at least in the interview that this article was based upon with you, um, that you were first introduced to, to sexual activity at the age of eight, which is yeah. obviously extremely young. Um and you you said that had an impact on how you felt about yourself and about about your your sex, right? Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, it, it really began to change me. One because I just I became very sexual and early on became addicted to um, sexual play with other kids. And but also it um, this particular boy was only a year older than me, mm-hmm. and you know because it, it felt good and the body responds, you know, and there was a lot of shame and guilt and everything, but it's, at the same time there was a curiosity. And when I went back to him, he really rejected me. And I really began to feel like, you know, boys had all the power um, to say, you know, whether they would have this relationship or not. And so I just felt so helpless and so discarded, you know, like trash. You were attracted to boys as a as an adolescent girl, but yet you felt like you wanted to be a boy. Did you feel then, I mean, was it a conscious thought that I think I want to be a boy who likes boys, that I want to be a gay male? I really wouldn't. I didn't even think of it that way as a kid. Um, I, I think I'd kind of separated the two. I, um, <clears throat> I really, the, I don't know how to quite describe that. I guess because I was really, I was acting out sexually with both males and females. Really, and in fact, I used to tell people, even when I went into the lifestyle, I would have told people that I would choose my gender a, a thousand times over before I would, um, I really didn't care all that much about who I dated um, because I was so obsessed with becoming a man. But I really ended up, even though I was physically attracted to males, mm-hmm. I I really wanted a girlfriend because I wanted to solidify this identity as a man. I, I really, looking back, I was so jealous of my brother. <laughs> We're talking with Laura Perry. Uh, Laura Perry is uh, a, a very unique individual, somebody who uh, is went through very difficult feelings as a girl and as an adolescent. She decided she wanted to be a male. We'll get to your life-altering decision at age 25 in a moment, um, but let's talk about your teenage years. When you went through this and your body started to change, you go through puberty, you, know, you're, you, you start to develop and, and all of these kinds of things, and you started to hate that feminine side of yourself, and you felt like you really wanted to be male. Who are you talking to during this time? Do you have friends? Do you have anybody that you counseled with? Did you have any, maybe your dad, you know, you said you had a really nice, close relationship with your dad, closer than mom, or did you have anybody you can go to about these strange feelings that you were having? No, I didn't really talk to anybody. I lived kind of in my own fantasy world. I really didn't have a lot of friends during that time, uh, especially sixth and seventh grade, both years I had gone to a new school. I wasn't fitting in very well. Uh, my, my dad that I was very close to when I was little, we had grown apart a little bit. He was working a lot later. He had a very, very stressful job. And I, I remember just feeling so alone. I didn't, I didn't really talk to anybody. And then uh, I started having physical problems. And my, 
I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome, and I, I started to get really angry because it was like, okay, I have this body that I don't want in the first place, and now it's causing me nothing but excruciating chronic pain. And then the, the doctors were telling me I was likely never even going to get pregnant. And that's when I really started to get angry at God. That's that's a, a very powerful thing, and I'm sorry to hear that. That uh, that had to be a, you know, a a real difficult part of of everything that you were already enduring, and now you have that physical condition. Um, let's let's go ahead and fast forward now through your childhood and through your teenage years, and things haven't changed for you, and you still are feeling stronger and ever stronger than ever. That you just don't feel like you want to be a girl. That maybe you were meant to be a man, and so at age 25, you decided to do what? Yeah, I decided that I was going to become a man, and I honestly hadn't even heard the word transgender. I think we forget how quickly society has changed. This was in 2007. You're right. And I literally just looked up in Google, girl becoming a boy, just to see, like, if anybody had ever had these thoughts. And I was so stunned at, like, the amount of results that came up. And I found a support group in Tulsa where I was living at the time. And so I went and showed up, and, you know, within five minutes, they're like, oh, you are definitely transgender. Like, I knew it, you know. And it's amazing how the devil will tell you anything you want to hear, you know. I mean, he knows exactly what to sell you. And so um, I really began to believe it with all my heart. And I was worried that I would never look like a man. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. After a year or so of taking hormones, no one will ever know you were a girl. And that's what I had wanted to hear all my life. And it was like I really was hooked at that point. So and you took, you took to, testosterone treatments and... Uh, yeah. And- Estrogen blockers to, to kind of crush the femininity and to improve the masculinity? I actually didn't even have to take estrogen blockers. Now, men have to take testosterone blockers, mm-hmm. uh, but females to males, the testosterone is so dominant, you don't really even need it. Oh, you don't even need um, to, so. Did you, did, you, so uh, did, did you have any surgical procedures? I did, yeah. and uh, I had a double mastectomy, and then I had all the female organs removed. But oh. I never had um, genital reassignment. I just had so basically. I so you had a hysterectomy. Realize, yeah. Okay. So you had a hysterectomy. Yeah. You had a double double mammography. So you so you you literally did alter your body. Okay, I didn't realize that part. My apologies. Yeah. So did you did you start to grow facial hair and those kinds of things from your testosterone treatments? Did you um, you know to to, yeah. to kind of fully embrace the male in you as you want it to be? Yeah, I had a pretty full beard at one point. I had. Uh, my voice had gotten much lower, and you know it was um it was like all these things as, as these things were happening to my body, and it was so exciting i mean it 's like being in an amusement park it 's so thrilling, but then after a while it the, the fun kind of wears off, and you realize um that it 's not actually fixing the problem, but you think the next thing will, and it really is not a whole lot different than um drugs or alcohol it 's masking mm. the pain but only temporarily, but you always think that that next one will. So, Laura, you end up like that. Um, you end up, or you uh, get into a relationship with another male, or with a male, right. really. Uh, you're not a male at this point, but you're trying to be. Uh, you are in a relationship and living with this guy for 10 years. And I'm just kind of, again, going by the interview, and I want you to tell us a little bit more about it. What happened some 10 years on into your relationship as you're watching television together? We had been seeing all all kinds of things. Now it was interesting throughout the way that the God that God began to work in my life. Actually, He was one of the only a couple of people I've ever known in the lifestyle 
that were um, conservative. And he was, like, radically conservative. Uh, and it, we started this journey of truth. And I really, not really seeking God at the time, but really just seeking the truth politically is how it started. And I was listening for years. I was listening to conservative talk radio. Um, and then later, as we began to see the culture shift, and we were watching things on TV about uh, transracial and trans species and trans age of all things and all these weird things. And I started to realize how insane all this was. So you were seeing people who literally thought they were a different species, literally thought they were a different race, literally thought they were a different age than what they are. And you realized that's not true. You're not obviously those things. And that led you to say, well, maybe I'm not really male either. Maybe I'm just as as misguided in this adventure adventure as those people are, right? Yeah, and that really wasn't even until after. I, I at, um, In 2014, about a year and a half before I came out, out of the lifestyle, actually the Lord had encountered me, and He had been drawing me for years and through various sources. Actually, conservative talk radio had a huge part in it because people would some of the radio hosts would talk about God, and it just began to soften me towards God. There were times in high school I was praying to Satan, asking Satan to keep people from coming to know Jesus. I wanted nothing to do with God. But he had been just drawing my heart. And in 2014, I had an encounter with the Lord and just got radically saved. I mean, I was I was so transformed, and I became zealous and was sharing my faith. And I thought I was going to be this man of God. Um and I, I realized later, I, I was talking to my mom, she had been praying that God would draw me back like a magnet. And I was like, wow, that's what God has done. Laura, so I want to hear I want to hear more about your uh, your pull from God. Literally, God pulling yeah. you back in. But I need to qu- take a yeah. quick time out here. Can you st- stick with us for another short segment right after this break? Yeah, sure can. Okay, good. Laura Perry is my guest. And while you're waiting during this break, if you want, she's got a blog site called Transgender to Transformed. Literally spelled out, transgender, T-O, transform, transgender to transform.com. Check that out, and we'll be back with Laura Perry right after this. Okay, it's 9.55. I've got less than five minutes left with Laura Perry, and I apologize for that, Laura, because we have less time for the transformation back to Laura uh, than we actually spent getting you from Laura to Jake uh, through your childhood. So you talked about 2014 having a transformational experience, and you felt the pull of God. And I think this is where we bring Dr. Piper into the equation, at least according to the interview. You heard Dr. Piper talking about how, as people, we are not just made up of our instincts, our feelings, and our desires because that would make us like animals, but we're made in the image of God. And I can almost quote this because he says this on my radio program every week, every Thursday we talk to him. Tell me how that impacted you. Yeah, I remember thinking at the time, you know, I had always um, shoved away the conviction because this is who I was, this is how I felt, and it was my identity. I knew God didn't create me that way, but it was like, because I have these feelings, I have to do this. And that's really what began to bring the conviction that, this is a choice, and I knew that deep down. And so that's when I really began to turn my heart um, toward God, saying, okay, Lord, what does this look like for me? What do you want from me? 
And I kept, I still didn't know how to fix it. I didn't know what to do because every time I thought about being a woman again, I mean, it was like a knife going through my soul. There was so much pain there, and I didn't know why. It was just buried so deep. All I knew was I had these extremely painful feelings. And so I, uh, one night, though, I was really getting desperate for the Lord. I was so hungry for Him, and I wanted to be completely sold out to Him. And so I threw myself on the floor, and I began to cry out to the Lord. I said, what do you want from me? What do you... What do I need to do to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? And he asked me a question. He said, if, if you stood me before me tonight, what name would I call? And I was stunned by that. I was like, Lord, that's not fair. You know, like, I've repented of this. I'm sorry, you know, but I, I didn't know that there was anything I could do about it. And he reminded me in John chapter 1 where it says, Jesus Christ himself is the creator. He said, you cannot claim to love me and yet reject my creation. And I thought I was being condemned because I just had no concept of being female again. But in the most loving voice I've ever heard in all my life, he whispered to me and he said, let me tell you who you are. And that's really what began to free me. You know, but I, I still didn't know how to fix it. I didn't know what to do about it. And I didn't want to be a girl. And so I really just began to beg God with all my heart to take my life because I didn't see any way out. And I finally found myself in this deep, dark pit that I couldn't get out of. And I could see the light at the top, but I had no way to reach it. And he reminded me of Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through 26. It says, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his own soul? For what shall he give in exchange for his soul? And so I remember... Um, thinking that he was literally asking me to walk away from everything. And he, I had this vision of Jesus Christ getting down on one knee. He reached his hand down into this pit, and he said, Do you trust me? And I knew he was just asking me to walk away. And I didn't have that kind of faith yet, but I just, my mom kept encouraging me that if I would be obedient, the feelings would follow. And I just had no idea the radical transformation that was ahead of me. And I saw the Lord begin to transform me as I walked by faith. Laura, how how long had it been that you had been living as a male when all of this started to happen to you? I had been the the total lifestyle was about nine years. Okay, and 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 how uh, how old were you when when you started to have these visions and these in these conversations with with the Lord? I was thirty three. You were thirty three. And uh, you don't have to tell me how old you are now, but I guess that's what I'm asking. If I say, how long have you been back to being Laura now? Uh, it'll be five years this summer. Okay. Because we're short on time here, I'm going to ask you, because you were so open and honest about your own situation, and I truly, truly appreciate that. I wish I could talk to you for another hour, but I can't. So I'm just going to ask you this. What message do you have for confused young men or young women who just don't, they haven't heard from God yet either, they're confused, they have, you know, whether it's gender dysphoria or whatever the condition may be, but they think they're supposed to be something that they're not, what message do you have for them after your experiences? The biggest thing I learned was that this lifestyle is never real, and I'm not the only one that has found this, these surgeries, these hormones, all these procedures never made the identity real. And all I was doing was trying to mask the pain. Um, but the reality is I could never change who I was. But when I truly gave my life to Jesus and I trusted in him, he has absolutely transformed me. And I, have, I don't have those feelings and desires anymore. It wasn't an overnight process. It took time. 
But as the Lord peeled away the layers, as he began to heal me, as I began to forgive my mother, and he restored and redeemed that relationship, and he began to heal all those childhood wounds, now I have been able to truly embrace who I am. And, you, like, the people that know me now are so amazed at how feminine I am. <laughs> I was like, that little girl was just buried under all this pain. But That's I truly a- love being a woman, and I'm so in love with Jesus, my Savior. Your story is simply incredible, and I hope that so many people listen to it and understand it. When we try to tell people that we don't want to, we're not trying to hate anyone. Nobody hates, nobody that I know that's conservative hates transgenders. We want to help them actually get back to the reality and away from the fantasy world that somehow they got pulled into, whether it be through Satan or anything else. Laura Perry, thank you so much for sharing the story with us. I'm going to tell Dr. Piper on Thursday that you and I spoke. I know he'll be very, very thrilled, and thank you so much for sharing that story. Uh, thank you so much. God bless. And you as well. 1001, Curse Now next, AM 1420, The Answer. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.